once again to the Perimeter Church podcast. Is there anything about your family that makes you cringe? The one who thinks they can sing or dance when they can't? The Republican and a family of Democrats or vice versa? Same or different, we're all part of God's extended family called the church. Teaching team member Bob Cargo concludes the series Calling with this message entitled Called to the Church, which covers John chapter 17 and Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 40. Thank you for joining us today. Today we're uh, finishing up a series on the idea of calling, a calling. And I love the way that Dr. Oz Guinness has put it. I think if there's any one book I would recommend to you on this subject, it is the book by Oz Guinness simply entitled The Call. And the way Guinness has put it is this, that modern life assaults us with an infinite range of things we could do, things we would love to do, things that people tell us that we should do, and the calling of God helps us know what He wants us to do. It's a yes to God so that we can say no to everything else that is wise to say no to. I like how he's put that. Very, very insightful. Now, when we bring up this topic of calling, you may think that it's only and always about our jobs and about our work. And very honestly, one of the reasons we've wanted to to have this series is to reconnect again the idea of calling with your work. But it's a lot bigger than that. It's, It's much more than that. What we try to say in this series is that there is one primary calling that we have, and it is the calling to follow Jesus Christ, to follow a man and to know him. And what we tried to say is that the calling to know Christ is like a hook upon which every other calling of life hangs. We've talked about in this series the calling to the family. We've talked about the calling to work. Last week, David McNeely talked to us about the calling to the world, the calling to the world. And I like the way that David reframed and described our calling to the world. Instead of simply saying that we're called to give gospel words and gospel deeds to the world, what he said is this, we need to have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ was to have these two passions, the glory of the Father and freedom for for men and women. And in a way, what he was saying there is this, When we give the deeds of the gospel to people, we help them to have a taste of freedom, freedom from poverty, freedom from thirst, freedom from hunger, freedom from fear, freedom from oppression. And when they taste that kind of freedom, it points to the freedom of our souls that comes through the message of the gospel. So we need to have the passion that Jesus had. We need to understand that whenever someone responds to the gospel, that is the good news that Jesus lived, died, and was raised again for sinners, when they believe in that message, they experience true freedom of the heart. And that freedom brings glory to the Father. So, we're called to Christ, and we're called to the family, we're called to work, we're called to the world, and today we end the series by saying we're called to the church. Called to the church. Now, right here, I may have lost some of you because of this. Some of you here today, despite being in a church service, might have the attitude, forget it. I like the idea of following Jesus, but I don't like the idea of of needing to be part of a church. Well, I need to tell you, I can understand why you would say that. I really can. I've been a pastor for a lot of years, and let me tell you, 
whatever ugly, bad stories you have about churches, I have stories that are worse. I really do. Every pastor does. The, the truth of the matter is, churches can be ugly and bad places. But the Bible teaches that to follow him means to have a commitment to his people. And his people are to have a visible expression known as a local church. This connected to all the other churches who truly follow Jesus and believe the gospel. To follow Jesus is to be committed to his people, the church. This is the way Jesus put it in John 16. Who do people say that the Son of Man is, Jesus asked. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock, that is the rock of your confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, upon this rock, I will build what? I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The call to Jesus to believe that he is the Son of God is a call to be part of the church. The quote has been attributed to several of the early church fathers. Cyprian and also St. Augustine has been quoted throughout church history, but it's been famously said that to have God as your father, you have to have the church as your mother. Now, here's the problem. The problem with that is twofold. First of all, a church is like an extended family, and every extended family has people that are embarrassing, right? It could be your weird Uncle Al or your Aunt Mary. It could be your grandmother. It could be your little sister. But if you're part of an extended family, there's going to be somebody that you sort of wince and say, oh, golly, I'm sort of embarrassed. The other problem is that every church, the church universal and every local church, is made up of sinner saints. And that means we hurt each other. And sometimes we hurt each other in awful ways. And my heart goes out to you today if you are a person who has been wounded by the church or by church leaders. America is full of people who have been wounded by churches. But the truth of the matter is this. Though no church is perfect, God calls us to follow him together in the context of church. There's no such thing as a perfect church. For many years, downtown, I don't know if it's still there or not, it may have closed its doors, but there is a church, or at least there used to be a church in downtown Atlanta, and the name of it is the Perfect Church. Every time I've ridden by it, it used to be if you, you, took, if you took Marta to a Braves game, you went right by it when you were on the bus, if you got off at the, little five, or at the Five Points Marta station, the Perfect Church. And every time I've gone by it, I've thought to myself, I couldn't join that church because I'd mess it up. I'm sure not perfect. I couldn't join the Perfect Church. Let me give you an analogy. There are some people who, after seeing hurtful marriages or being in a hurtful marriage, would say, forget the institution of marriage, let's just live together in love. And we would say it's both and, not either or. Yes, there is to be love in a marriage, but love is to be lived out. Living together is to be lived out in the covenant of marriage. And in the same way, there's no reason to get rid of the institution of the church. God is the one who put the church together. The issue is, how do we live together in love in the church? So, being called to follow Jesus is a call to the church. Today's sermon builds upon and is an extension of the three-week series that Randy just preached recently called Traveling in Packs, 
Finding Community in Your Personal Life. That, my friends, was an excellent, excellent series. If you missed any one of the sermons or all three, please go online and listen to them or watch them. It will be worth every minute. Excellent in every way. Today we build upon that. And the big idea of today's sermon is simply this. The call to experience the love of God the Father through Jesus Christ is also a call to experience the love of my brothers and sisters in Christ and to love them back with a deep, genuine, authentic love. Let me say that again. The call to experience the love of God the Father through Jesus Christ is also the call to experience the love of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's a call to love them back with a love that is deep and genuine and authentic. That's why we need the cross, we need God's grace, and we need the Holy Spirit. Most of the ideas of my sermon today will come from John chapter 17. Today's sermon is really not what I would call an expository sermon. It's what I would call a textual topical sermon, so to speak. Uh, Most of the ideas will come from John 17. But there are four verses in this passage that sort of give the essence of today's message. Uh, John 17 gives us a prayer that Jesus prayed when he was in the upper room. It's after he had given the Last Supper. It was on what was on his heart that night, and within 24 hours, he would be nailed to a cross. And as Jesus faced his own expected excruciating death on the cross, this is what he prayed for. This is what he was thinking about for you and for me. John 17, verses 20 through 23. This is what it says. My prayer is not for them alone, that is, the 12 apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He was praying for us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I am them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. The call to experience the love of God the Father through Jesus Christ is the call to experience the love of our brothers and sisters and to love them back in a deep and genuine and authentic way. Very quickly today, we want to see that the call to the church means that we're called out, we're called to Christ, and we're called together. First of all, we are called out. We are called out. Now, that's a weird phrase. Why would we say that we are called out? Well, in Greek, the language that was spoken in the world in which Jesus lived, the the language that was used for the writing of the New Testament, in that Greek, the word church actually means to be one who is called out, the called out ones. It's the word ekklesia. You're going to see it on the screen. And ekklesia is a combination of two other Greek words. Ek means out. And kaleo means to call. This is a series on calling. And the word church, ecclesia, literally means the called out ones. Now, it's hard for me to help you get your head around how in this time and period, if you spoke Koine or common Greek, you couldn't even hear the word church without hearing the word calling. The church was indeed the group of the called out ones. And when we're assembled together, we're assembled together as those who have been called out of this world 
and called out for a special purpose. Let's look at John 17. Where do we see this idea of being called out? John 17, verse 6, and then verses 13 through 19. Jesus says, I've revealed you, Father, to those you gave me, notice, out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they've obeyed your word. Verse 13, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I'm of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the word, physically that is, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them, that is, set them apart. That's the idea of sanctity or holiness. Sanctify them, set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, or set myself apart, that they too may be truly sanctified. Called out, not of the world, and yet sent into the world. What does that mean? Here's the way I would express it. As the church, we are winsomely different, you're going to see it on the screen, winsomely different, engaged with the world, and serving an unseen kingdom. Here's the combination of what it means. Yes, we are winsomely different from the world. That's the way in which we're called out. We're different because of what's true in our heart through the work of the Spirit. There's the fruit of the Spirit that gives us love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He produces in us what Jesus called the Beatitudes. There's poverty of spirit. There's humility. There's mourning for sin. There's hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's being a peacemaker. All of that makes us winsomely different. And we're wisdomly different because we understand the intrinsic designed holiness of people and of sexuality and of possessions and of relationships and of the truth and of all these things. And living that way makes us winsomely different. But we're also engaged with the world. We're not living in monasteries. We're not living in convents. We're engaged with the people of the world, loving those people, serving those people, caring about those people, trying to bless those people. Uh, Yes, at times, differing with the world, opposing the world, trying to correct the world when we see the world hurting people who are made in God's image. But though we're called out, we're engaged. And why is it that combination? It's because we serve an unseen kingdom. Not too long ago, Randy did a series called The Unseen. We serve a kingdom that is unseen, but it's more real than these tangible things we see right here. Last year or a year or two ago, Michael Goheen came to preach here and he talked about how we've been transferred to the kingdom of God's Son. That makes all the difference. So here's the very first thing we need to understand. If we're to understand who we are as the church, we are called out and then sent back with a whole new way of thinking and living. Number one, we're called out. Number two, we are called to Christ. We're called to Christ. Now, that may seem more than obvious. Surely, if you're called to follow Jesus, you're you're called to Christ. If you're called to the church, you're called to Christ. But this is what I'm trying to say by these three words defining the church, called to Christ. You'll see it in your insert, points to remember. You'll see it on the screen. Our relationships are founded upon the gospel, the good news event. And our relationships are modeled after and empowered by the relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Let that sink in for a minute. That's what defines us. 
Now, the gospel event is, as I just said, is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if there is no gospel, there is no church. The Bible says that Jesus has died to purchase for God a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We belong to God because Jesus has purchased us and set us free. And together we belong to the Lord. Like a group of adopted children, we are family because Jesus paid the price for our adoption. That's why we're family. It's based upon what he did on the cross. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I think the idea there is not only are we protected by means of Jesus laying down his life for us, we become his flock by means of his laying down his life for us. The gospel itself, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of who we are in the church. But not only do I mean that, I mean also that we're, we're, we're built upon an ongoing experience of the benefits of the death of Jesus. I don't want to lose you in this. Track with me. We are the church because of what really happened in time and space when Jesus died for us. That's the foundation of who we are as the church. But we live out an experience of true love for each other, bearing one another's burdens, caring for each other, serving each other, by experiencing an ongoing experience of the benefits and the results of the cross. There was a great theologian that people in our denomination think very highly of in the 20th century by the name of Dr. Francis Schaeffer. Dr. Schaeffer had a phrase in which he often talked about the present value of the death of Christ. The present value of the death of Christ. There was another theologian and leader of the 20th century by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a tremendous book called Life Together. It's about who we are as the church. And it describes, I think, though he didn't use this terminology, the present value of the death of Jesus. In the book, he talks about what it means to live under the cross. What does it mean to live under the cross? And he talked about how we are called to serve each other and help each other in part by confessing our sins to one another. He talks about that verse in the New Testament in which we're commanded, confess your sins one to another. It's part of how we bear each other's burdens of temptation, how we bear each other's burdens of our failings and our need for forgiveness. And in his book, Life Together, he asked this question, who is the appropriate person to hear someone else's confession of sin? And he doesn't say it's the ordained clergy alone or anything like that. Confess your sins to one another. But he makes this powerful, powerful insight. I hope this recalibrates your thinking about fellowship. This is what he says. Anyone who lives beneath the cross and who is discerned in the cross of Jesus, the utter wickedness of all men and of his own heart, will find that there is no sin that can ever be alien to him. Anybody who has once been horrified by the dreadfulness of his own sin that nailed Jesus to the cross will no longer be horrified or recoil away from by the rankest sins of a brother. Looking at the cross of Jesus, he knows the human heart. He knows how utterly lost it is in sin and weakness, how it goes astray in the ways of sin. And he also knows that it is accepted in grace and mercy, and that is, that it's forgiven through grace and mercy. Only the brother under the cross can hear a confession. It is not experience of life, but experience of the cross 
that makes one a worthy hearer of confession. Wow, that's powerful. To be called to Christ in the church means that our relationships are founded in truth and in experience upon the cross of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But also being called to Christ means this. The other part of what I want to say is this. It means that our relationships are modeled after and empowered by the relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Let me say that again. Being called to Christ means that our relationships are modeled by and empowered by the relationships between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Look back at John 17, okay? A few selected verses. Verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now notice here, the Father glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying the Father. Mutual love, mutual honor, glory to each other. Verse 4, I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before, with you before the world began. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Do you see the relationship? We are given to the Son by the Father, but the Son is revealing to us the Father. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they've obeyed your word, verse 21, that all of them may be one Father, just as you were in me and I in them. May they also be in us, that the world might believe that you have sent me. Do you see here the perfect love and honor between the Father and the Son, and implicitly between the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit and the Son? In other words, our unity is an expression of the unity of God Himself. Our love for each other, our honor for each other is modeled by and empowered by this relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Because it's the Father and the Son who have sent the Spirit into our hearts. And He's the one who empowers us. And all of that comes through faith in Jesus. What does it mean to be the church? We're called out. We're called to Christ. And then thirdly, number three is this. We're called together. We're called together. By this I mean there is to be a tangible and qualitative genuineness in our relationships with each other. And those relationships come from the heart. And those relationships are a function of our intellect, of our will, and of our emotions. In the third sermon of Randy's series of Traveling in Packs, he talked in that message about pseudo-relationships and authentic relationships. Excellent, excellent observations. Authentic relationships come about how? They come about by way of what one author has described as emotionally healthy spirituality. Emotionally healthy spirituality. Let me ask you this. Have you ever thought about the emotional perfection of Jesus? The emotional perfection of Jesus. Now, the most important kind of perfection that Jesus had was moral perfection. Without moral perfection, we couldn't be saved. It was his perfect obedience that brought to us a righteousness that would save us. But not only was Jesus morally perfect, Jesus was emotionally perfect. Well, what does that mean? It means that his emotions didn't rule him, but it also meant he was not in denial about his emotions. emotions. He was fully aware of his emotions. He was emotionally engaged. He was emotional in a perfect way. 
Think about the experience of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26. Listen as I read. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The English doesn't do justice to the words in the Greek. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not I will, as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. I think with great sadness, he said, could you men not keep watch with me for an hour? He asked Peter. Now, his emotions didn't rule him. He went to the cross, though, as we might put it in our vernacular, he didn't feel like it. He didn't feel like going to the cross, but he went to the cross. But at the same time, he was absolutely engaged with his emotions at that point. And in every part of his ministry, he was emotionally aware and emotionally engaged. Consider these examples. He shed tears. He was filled with joy. He grieved. He was angry. Sadness came over him. He felt sorrow. He showed astonishment and wonder. He felt distressed. Also, another list from the same author. He was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He wept at the graveside of Lazarus, and he wept over the city of Jerusalem. He was angry with his disciples. He was furious at the crass commercialism in the temple. He showed astonishment at the faith of a Gentile. He had an emotional longing to be with the 12 apostles, and he had compassion, deep emotional compassion for widows, for lepers, for blind people. That was Jesus, and Jesus was emotional. Now, let me ask you, are you afraid of your emotions? Are you afraid of your emotions? Or have you learned in a healthy, scriptural, biblical way to be in touch with your emotions, to be aware of your emotions, and to let those emotions tell you what's going on deep in your heart so that you'll go to Jesus for the needs of your heart, not to be ruled by your emotions, but not stuffing and denying your emotions. Here's my point. You'll see it in your outline. You'll see it on the screen. Our redemption includes emotional redemption. And our truest and deepest fellowship is impossible without it. This is a hard lesson to learn, especially for some of us men who have been taught our whole lives that emotions are bad. Our redemption includes emotional redemption. And our truest and deepest fellowship is impossible without it. Now, let me tell you, I'm not saying that we're supposed to always bleed all over everybody all the time. Please don't, okay? Please don't. That's not what I'm saying. Don't bleed over everybody all the time, but with the appropriate people in the appropriate way, you and I need to pursue emotional redemption. And in all of our relationships, we need to be emotionally aware Dan Allender is a tremendous author and teacher and Christian counselor. And he and a fellow by the name of Temper Longman have put it this way in a book entitled The Cry of the Soul. Hear these words, so wise. Ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions, and that doesn't mean being ruled by your emotions. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality. And reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. 
They're the cry that gives the heart a voice. However, we often turn a deaf ear through emotional denial, distortion, or disengagement. We strain out anything disturbing in order to gain tenuous control of our inner world. We're frightened and ashamed of what leaks into our consciousness. In neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves, and we lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. Pete Scazzaro is a champion of emotionally healthy spirituality. And he became a champion of that because he recognized that for many years in his life and his ministry, he practiced an emotionally unhealthy spirituality. He's the pastor of New Life Fellowship in Queens, New York, and he tells the story of how his church was a church known for dynamic ministries, an impressive growth rate, a vision to do great works in New York City and beyond, and he was told powerful preaching. But in his own life and heart, he never really connected the dots, he says, between emotional health, relational depth, and spiritual maturity. By his own testimony, he identified that he had never understood, hear me well, the emotional components of spiritual maturity. He came to be aware of this need by finally admitting the pain that he was causing to other people, his family and the people around him in his life and in his ministry. And finally coming out of denial about the pain he was causing them by the way he was living life, he began to face up to it. He's gone on to write two books that I highly recommend called The Emotionally Healthy Church and Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And his story is basically a story of doing these three things. Number one, finally developing an awareness of what was going on inside of him, what he was feeling and what he was doing. Number two, learning how to ask the questions, why am I feeling that? What's going on underneath me in my heart? And to let those questions help him get in touch with the brokenness of his life, with the idols of his heart, as well as sometimes the rightness of what he felt, not the wrongness. And then finally, number three, linking the gospel to emotional health. Just to give you a couple of things that he said in his book that he wouldn't have said many years ago in, in his life and in his ministry. He said this, leadership is not always being the strong one. It's being the weak one who is made strong by God alone. For him, that was a new thought. He also said this, knowing that I stand before God as his beloved through the gospel, through the work of Jesus on my, ha- on my behalf, knowing that I stand before God as his beloved has freed me to explore some of the disturbing and dark aspects of who I am. You know what, brothers and sisters, we all have disturbing and dark aspects of who we are. The question is, will we get free enough to dive into those things. His story is the story that because of that kind of freedom he found on the inside, he began to experience authentic community, authentic relationships, the church being the church like it never was before. Not only was he changed, his whole church was changed. The last two times I've preached uh, to you here, I've shared with you some about my own journey some of my own experiences of coming face to face with my drivenness in life and what that was doing to my family. My experience of dealing with those things has been part of my own journey into and continuing through emotionally healthy spirituality.
I began that journey maybe 15 years ago. I'm not going to end it until I die. It's a journey that never ends. But I'll tell you, it makes all the difference in the world to connect with an emotionally healthy spirituality. Our calling to Christ is a calling together. And it's a calling to love each other from the heart. Our redemption includes emotional redemption. And our deepest and truest fellowship is impossible without it. Cazero has written this book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and uh, the Emotionally Healthy Church. He gives six principles for emotional health in a fellowship. Now, there's much too much to go into in depth. But in about two and a half minutes, let me give you these six principles. You'll find them on the second panel. The second panel, the back of your points to remember. In two and a half minutes, six points. Here they are. Look beneath the surface. Look beneath the surface. In other words, learn to be aware of your emotions. Ask, why do you feel that? What's going on? Lose the glittering image of yourself and get in touch with what you're feeling and why you're feeling it. Number two, break the power of the past. The truth is every one of us in this room, no exceptions, we have baggage from our past, most often baggage from our families of origin. One of the best gifts I ever gave myself in life and to others around me is to get into a Christian counselor's office and deal with the issues of my family of origin and the issues of pain in my past. Look beneath the surface. Break the power of the past. Number three, live in brokenness and vulnerability. Not easy words in a culture like ours. Here's how Scazzaro gives you, in part, the contrast between being proud and defensive or broken and vulnerable. He says, proud and defensive people are guarded and protective about their imperfections and flaws. But if I'm broken and vulnerable, I'm transparent and weak. I disclose myself to appropriate others. Proud and defensive means I'm focused on the positive and strong and successful parts of myself. Brokenness and vulnerability means I'm aware of the weak, needy, and limited parts of who I am. I freely admit failure. Instead of being highly offendable and defensive, I can become approachable and open to input. Instead of being a person who focuses first on the flaws, mistakes, and sins of others, I'm aware of my own brokenness. That helps me have compassion, and I'm slow to judge others. Instead of being afraid to get close to people, I'm often I'm open, soft, and curious about others. Instead of keeping people keeping people from seeing what's going on inside me. Vulnerability and brokenness means I delight in showing vulnerability and weakness that Christ's power may be seen. Christ's power. And instead of demanding and wanting to control most situations, I learn to let go and give people an opportunity to earn my trust. Being broken and vulnerable. Number four is this, receive the gift of limits. Receive the gift of limits. In other words, what are the boundaries that you should have in your life? And what are the limits of your availability and your ability that you need to humbly accept? Number five, embrace grieving and loss. Put a star by that one. I think it's often our, unabil- in our inability and or our unwillingness to truly grieve our losses that shrinks our hearts and makes our relationships shallow. Embrace grieving and loss. And lastly, make incarnation your model for loving well. What does it mean that Jesus was incarnate? It means he entered into and connected with our pain and our sorrow. But at the same time, he brought to us a healing for our pain and our sorrow. And that's a model of how God wants us to love other people. To enter into their pain and sorrow and yet bring healing along the way. Let's wrap this up, and here's what we've been trying to say. 
Being called to Christ means being called to his church. You can't divide the two. And being the church means that we're called out, that we're called to Christ, and we are called together. The call to experience the love of God the Father in Jesus Christ is a call to experience the love of your brothers and sisters and then to love them back with a love that's deep and genuine and authentic. That's being the church together. I can't say any better than with the words of Paul Ellis as he reviewed a book by somebody else's, but this is what he said. Knowing about love and experiencing love is two different things. It's one thing to read 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter on love. It's another thing to live it and enjoy it and share it. This is why we need the church, he says. It's only in real relationships with real people that we have an opportunity to live a real life, the kind of lives that Christ came to give us. This is the church, he says, living in the room of grace. Now, let me admit something. I admit that in our culture in North Atlanta, this, will, this sermon will and should rattle the cage of many people, especially men. Most men in our culture of North Atlanta have been told, deny that you have emotions. And the only emotion you can ever share is anger. And then you have to be careful about that one. Here's the truth. God wants for us something different. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, I will boast in my weaknesses that Christ's power will be seen in me. For God said to me, Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My power will be seen in your weakness. Wow, that turns everything upside down. In a few moments, we're going to come and take this table. This table tells us the power of what we've just talked about today. We are saved by a Savior who was broken for us. We are saved by a Savior who became weak for us. We are saved by a Savior who wept for us and who entered into that brokenness fully aware and fully engaged. And that's how He wants to live, us to live lives too. Here's the truth of the matter, my friends. We are called to follow Him together as the church. May we always live under the cross as we do. And as we live under the cross, we'll experience the power of His grace and the power of His resurrection. Let's pray as we close. Oh, Lord Jesus, we come to you today admitting that we are people who would much rather be in control than out of control. We would much rather be all together than falling apart. And we'd much rather be able than admitting our inabilities. The Lord, we thank you that you've called us to something greater and more beautiful than that. Thank you that you've called us to one another when you've called us to yourself. And we thank you that as we learn to love each other as you've loved us, the world will see the Father has sent the Son. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.